Good morning. Good morning. Uh, first, I'd like to say hi to everyone at uh, Clouds in Water, because I understand that you're watching us over there on a screen. Welcome uh, to MZMC uh, virtually. It's great to have you here. And uh, I'm Ted O'Toole, guiding teacher here. And I'm happy to introduce our guest speaker, Shosan Victoria Austin who uh, began practicing Zen in 1971, so that's 52 years ago. <laughs> um, she's trained in the U.S., in India, and in Japan. Uh, she's in the lineage of uh, Shunryu Suzuki. Um, she has uh, been active at the San Francisco Zen Center for a long time in many roles, including work leader, Tenzo, Tonto, and president. And um, she uh, is uh, a yoga teacher. Uh, she's a right use of power facilitator. Facilitator In her offerings, she emphasizes inclusion, accessibility, trauma sensitivity, and appropriate challenge grounded in awareness of the possibility and presence of liberation. Uh, she's also um, a sewing teacher and as most of you know, sewing is very important in our tradition. We sew our own robes and our own uh, rakasus, and it's been important in our tradition for 2,500 years. And um, Victoria studied sewing with Mitsu Suzuki, and one of her early practice teachers was Dainin Katagiri Roshi, who founded our uh, temple. And uh, she's also studied with and assisted uh, Zen K. Blanche Hartman, uh, a very well-known uh, sewing teacher in the San Francisco Zen Center style of sewing uh, Buddha's robe. And she's here for several uh, inter-sangha events uh, starting uh, Thursday evening, a lovely ceremony for consecration of fabric at uh, Dharma Field Zen Center. And there were other events at Dharma Field. Uh, there was a workshop uh, all day yesterday at Clouds in Water. And uh, we are just so very happy to have you here. And I'm happy to, I'm so very happy to be here with you. And um, the last time I was here, there were two rooms. There was a Zendo over there and a practice room over here. <laughs> and the family lived upstairs. <laughs> so that was a while ago. And um, I'm just so happy to be here with you. And um, please make yourself comfortable, whatever that means. So it's not possible to pay attention or to practice uh, if you're not taking care of yourself. There's different kinds of discomfort. And um, it took me a long time to learn how to pay attention to the small voice of my conscience, um, to understand uh, what was appropriate effort. And so we have to respect the ecology inside of us. Uh, and not let the practice of nonviolence stop here, okay? So if you need to move or change position, if you need to like put your hands down so you can balance yourself on your buttock bones and allow your sense of balance 
to guide you. And when it becomes forced, move. Okay? And um, so the continuity I'm asking you of you is not physical immobility. It's a sense of connection with your own inner uh, balance, your own inner sense of peace and harmony. So that the Sangha inside is as welcoming as the Sangha outside. And I think that's what this means. So I want to talk about the robe, but it's a metaphor. The robe is a metaphor for how we clothe ourselves in the practice. Okay? So um, we, you know, receive vows and do all kinds of stuff in Zen, as you know. And um, that stuff that we do, the stuff that we take on as a shared form, as kind of a shared toy with team rules and stuff, that is meant for something. And what it's meant for is um, awakening. The awakening isn't just to transcend our body and mind. Awakening includes our historical um, body and mind. Uh, the body and mind that we might want to transcend if we have a chance. So it includes that body and mind. And it includes our um, body and mind of possibility. And it includes our body and mind of endeavor. Uh, where we keep both our uh, past, our conditioned life, and our unconditioned life in a sense of balance, in a sense of priority, to respond in the present moment instead of to react. And so wrapping ourselves in the robe is a practice of wrapping ourselves in a um, an intention that's visible to other people and to ourselves. And so it also makes us, it adds the dimension of accountability and participation, intimacy, which is, um, Dogen Zenji uh, talks about it as the virtue of peace and harmony. Okay, so I want to talk about Buddha's robe, and um, that practice was introduced here by Mrs. Katagiri. Okay, Tomoe category. And she was one of my original teachers too. And um, Tomoe category um, was a student of Yoshida Roshi. And um, so let me see if I have a picture of Yoshida Roshi. I do. This is Yoshida Roshi. Okay. Can you, can you see her? Should I pass her around? I'll pass her around. <laughs> so I'll pass around Yoshida Roshi. <laughs> uh, and um, I, um, you know, I, I, sew, I didn't sew with, with um, Katagiri Sensei so much because she and Katagiri Roshi were getting ready to go and start this place. Uh, but I did, uh, I did study with uh, Joshin-san. Um, so uh, Sakai Joshin-san, 
was one of my first sewing teachers, and I can't find her picture right. Oh yeah, there, there she is. Sakai Joshin-san. Um, so when I met her, she was such a happy person that I, um, <laughs> I had to do whatever she was doing, and that's what Blanche did too. And um, this is a picture of my elder Dharma sister, Shunbo Zenke Blanche Hartman. And she was my kind of my partner in crime for a very long time <laughs> until, um, until she couldn't do that anymore due to old age. So I want to talk about the robe uh, as a metaphor for our practice that teaches us the different levels and layers of practice. So I want to start with a yogic concept. Shh. <laughs> You don't talk about yoga so much in the Zen setting. Uh, yoga teaching um, gives us uh, three levels and layers of uh, indriyas or rulers of our behavior. So we have the karmendriyas, the jnanendriyas, and the dharmendriyas. So the karmendriyas are our arms, <laughs> our legs, and our generative organs. And those are the the rulers of what we do. So we do things with our hands and feet or um, our attractions and aversions. And that, that's what we do, okay? So the first thing we work with in yoga practice is what we do. The second thing we work with in yoga practice is what we sense. So the jnan andreas jnan is like jnana or knowledge or, um, you know, uh, kind of, our perceptual life. And that's one of the things we work with in uh, all of our practices. The jnanendriyas are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the skin, and also the capacity of our mind to think, to, to make thoughts. So those are the jnanendriyas. Those um, dominate what we know. And then there's the dharmendriyas, which dominate um, they don't dominate so much because the other ones usually override them, but uh, they, uh, if we can listen to basically the still small voice inside of us, the voice of our conscience, those are the dharmendriyas or what we intend, as Suzuki Roshi called it, our inmost request. So three levels, the stuff that we do with our hands and feet, the stuff that we see, feel, experience, and the stuff that we know inside but never pay much attention to because the other stuff is more dramatic. Okay, so those are the three layers. And they just happen to handily correspond <laughs> to three levels and layers of um, robe practice and also of our um, practice in general. And um, you can read more about this in um, any book on any book that you happen to have around on Vasubandhu's <laughs> Three Natures. <laughs> okay, so there are probably people in this very room who can <laughs> who are turning all shades of red right now. <laughs> 
could ask about the three natures. And it's really cool how the three natures go with three um, important points about Buddha's robe, because there are people here who wear the robe and people who don't. And also three ways in which we receive vows. Also with the uh, indrias that I just described. It's really interesting. So, so what we call robe sewing in, in our practice, and you can read about this more in Tomoe Katagiri's sensei's book on sewing Buddha's robe. You can read about um, the three um, considerations in Yoho A. So um, that uh, robes are clothes. Okay. Robes are ceremony. Right. And robes are um, a reminder of Buddha's mind. So those are three levels or layers in which we can see not just the robes, but any form that we do. So like, for instance, if you happened to put your hands like this, okay, and you can try it yourself you and put your hands like this. Okay, and now there's a whole room of people putting their hands like this, right? And just feel what that feels like. So this is an acknowledgement in which the hands touch each other and the base of the palm is opposite our um, center of expression at the base of our throat. And feel what that feels like. And if you happened to be here and look at the person across from you and just do this, suddenly you're acknowledging Buddha in them. <laughs> like, whoa, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was interesting. You know, because there are distinct instructions for how to do this. Okay, base of the palm, base of the thumb, upright. Mm, para, okay, mm, eyes, okay, got it. And then suddenly, we're in a whole different realm. And this realm is central to Suzuki Roshi's teaching, this um, style of it all comes up all at once, and this is how it comes up. Like Suzuki Roshi had this talent of, I guess it was a, a developed talent, of when he uh, took in food and drink, all of it was there. And when he saw a person he saw them, he saw their Buddha nature. <laughs> and guess who answered when he bowed to them? And that's how Katagiri Roshi happened to be called to come to the United States of America and ended up next to the Lake of Shining Waters, right? <laughs> 
and how we all happen to be in this room. Okay, from that intention that gets realized, not in some kind of militaristic, externally uh, motivated set of gestures, but this uh, transmission of the physical posture, physical characteristics, the sensory experience that we can reflect, and the inner meaning. So those all are braided together in these forms and in this robe. So um, let's just, um, for a minute, just go into some of the stuff. Okay, who, who says? <laughs> who says this is practice? And what exactly do they say? I know I wrote some notes on this. So, um, but um, yeah, I did. I even made a nice little table. <laughs> because I felt like this was so interesting. So Tomoe Katagiri quote from her. There are three considerations concerning the wearing of the okesa for a disciple of the Buddha. The first is its practical use as clothing. The second is its ceremonial use as a religious garment. And the third is receiving it. That's interesting. It's not just that it is this thing, it's receiving it as the Buddha's body and mind. In India, the okesa was used practically as clothing and as receiving, um, uh, it, uh, and as receiving the Buddha's body and mind. In Japan, however, its practical use disappeared. Only its uses as a ceremonial garment and as receiving the Buddha's body and mind remained. The formless teaching of the Buddha is contained in the form and shape of the okesa. This is arakasu, which means teeny okesa. Okay. The okesa that is made in the traditional way and is one with Buddhist teaching is called nyoho-e. Tathagata is the one who comes thus, and nyoho-e is the clothing that comes thus. Okay, so nyoho, uh, like this dharma, a clothing. So, um, so uh, Tomoe-san's three considerations match the, um, the, the three natures that we've been discussing for some time, which match the precepts that, uh, the, the ways of receiving the refuges that Dogen Zenji taught, which match what we talked about from yoga, which match the Buddha bodies, and which match the teachings that are known as the five ranks or five positions of Zen. So they're all structured the same way. And to understand one is to understand an aspect of the other. Okay, so um, which one would you like to hear about? Ceremony. Ceremony. Thank you. Okay, let's start with ceremony. Okay, well, we had at Clouds and Water a lecture on ceremony recently, right? Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I gave one. Okay, so what's ceremony? So, Slan. 
since uh, so san roshi <laughs> together in a way that expresses uh, the truth of this moment. Thank you. So, so all of it is there. All three of them are there. So there's the truth of this moment. There's what we do. And then there's how we receive it as a teaching. So all three of them are present. Oh, phew, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> Clouds and water people, did you hear that? Sosan and I agree. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so ceremony, let's say ceremony, um, let's talk about ceremony as uprightness. So it, it, has a, it has that bodily aspect. It expresses our intention, right? Um, and it responds to the moment. Okay, so hit a race for a second. Let's do let's do this in our body. So we we're sitting zazen for this um, lecture, right? We're supposed to be able to pay attention in an upright way. So this is a ceremony. This lecture is a ceremony of giving and receiving our teaching. Okay, so let's make the bodies match the ceremonial aspect of this teaching. It's really, um, it's really so interesting. So if you arrange yourself, if you're on a chair, um, you may need um, to fold something under you to sit a little higher so that your thighs go down instead of up. So if you're really tall, you might need that. And if you're sitting on a cushion, you might need to adjust yourself so that you're legs are not screaming, and so that your buttock bones are equal and even on your support. You could feel like just that much already did something. Can you feel the difference inside? And what's so interesting is that how we hear and how we see changes when we do that. And now let's even do a little bit more. So that was the outer layer of the shape of the body. Let's work with the inner layer of uh, sensation. And so one of the easiest ways to work with this is balance. So if you're sitting in a chair, have your feet hip distance apart with the soles of the feet even and equal on the floor. And kind of balance yourself on the soles of your feet and you'll feel your buttock bones beginning to adjust, right? And if you're sitting on a cushion, we can do what we did before, right? But then let the uh, inner and outer thighs release downwards. And you'll feel immediately that the spine begins to rise inside. And then it's just a very simple matter fast forward a year or two, of releasing everything <laughs> that you don't need to do that, right? And then refreshing your posture as you need to, um, you know, uh, if you need to um, respond to the moment. 
And you'll feel suddenly that not only did your sensory world adjust, but if you lower your eyes, you'll be able to feel rising mind and falling mind with each breath. And if you stay in your physiological center as mind rises and falls, you'll be able to feel a sense of continuity with your deep intention. The ceremony of Zazen, uh, it's called that in a, in a um, text called the Hukan Zazengi. You <coughs> see. And um, so it actually uses the word ceremony or process of Zazen. Suzuki Roshi described it very concisely as just to sit with perfect attention on posture and breathing. <coughs> Excuse me cat allergies, and great pure effort is Zazen. It's the ceremony of Zazen. The Zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice realization of totally culminated awakening. Traps and snares can never reach it. Once its heart is grasped, you're like a dragon when she gains the water, like a tiger when he enters the mountains. For you should know that just there in Zazen, the right Dharma is manifesting itself, and that from the first, dullness and distraction are struck aside. Okay? <laughs> Okay, so that's ceremony. And when we, we um, you know, we um, do these things in these choreographed ways, that's what it's meant to do. But this is the basic ceremony, is the ceremony of ourselves right here, moment after moment. Okay, so you could feel how ceremony has in it Yeah, all, all the aspects, because it's the ceremonies like the, um, you know, it's like um, uh, uh, three natures, 202 or 302. <laughs> so uh, 101 <laughs> is what do you do? Like, oh, no, I'm sitting here with these bowls. What do I do? <laughs> and, you know, the, I think the answer is, Look, if you sit down, you get your bowls out, someone gives you food and you eat it, then you wrap them up and go home, you've succeeded. <laughs> That's Oriyoki 101, right? <laughs> but if then you can actually feel the warmth of the food in the bowl, you can feel somebody giving it to you. That's 102. And if you can figure out, okay, with this finger, I do this, I hold it that way, and I bring it around, and then I do this, and, you know, 
You see how the forms are developed to give us ways to make mistakes, <laughs> no matter how long we've been doing them. And that means that we have to keep responding and stay in this three realms. And this is what Dogen Zenji called in the precepts, maintained refuge. There's three types of refuge, single-bodied, manifested, and maintained. Single-bodied, of course, has to do with uh, dharmakaya, with our united experience, our realized experience. Manifested with our historical experience, our <laughs> koan experience, and maintained with um, our life as a ceremony of realization. So I think maybe I, I'm wondering how I'm doing on time because this feels like I'm kind of feeling the arc of the morning. Mm -hmm. And how am I doing on time? Uh, and how much? 1034. 1034? And what's my schedule? We've got 20 more minutes. 20 more minutes, including Q&A? Yes. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just, I just want to say that um, uh, uh, I, would, I just want to thank you, Ted and Ben, for your hospitality. I want to thank my old friends and my Soto Zen friends and my uh, Dharma buddy friends and my uh, baby practice friends. <laughs> Uh, and um, I want to also thank, okay, if Fiona is listening, please stick your hands in your ears, uh, because uh, this would not have been possible without Fiona's um, idea and efforts um, uh, for every single one of the events that we've done this weekend. And so... Um, I don't know if you know what a treasure you have here in your sewing teachers, um, both the ones that are retiring, who got their teaching directly from Katagiri Sensei, and also the upcoming generation. And I want to tell you also that at an event a couple of days ago, we pinky swore to continue this tradition and realize it. So, <laughs> so, um, so your teachers are also accountable to you. And so let's, um, uh, let's get informal. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or statements or Dharma or whatever, please, uh, please bring them. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> How formal do you think the uh, the Buddha robe um, should be? I mean, I, I mean, the Buddha robe would include all people sleeping in various states of disarray. So, would you sleep with a very organized Buddha robe, or <laughs> should you should you sleep in disarray? <laughs> yeah. So. Um, did, uh, did the people, did you guys hear it, the question, or should I repeat it? 
um, on online. Okay, so how formal should the Buddha robe be? Like, for instance, um, uh, you know, uh, the sutras talk about people sleeping in Buddha robes, ancient practices of sleeping in the Buddha robe. How, how much formality do we maintain? And so what I want to say is uh, all of our rules have light, medium, and bold versions. <laughs> and that uh, if you're a Theravadan practitioner, you're going for the bold. So you've, you've, uh, you've stated your attention in 200 something uh, ways if you're a man and 300 something ways if you're a woman, okay? And it's choreographed down to the centimeter. But um, I think for lay people, one of, the, uh, one of the reasons to be a lay person, one of the most important things about being a lay person is to, um, uh, the, the main question of lay practice is given my own form and my own habits, my own connections, my own responsibilities, my own talents, my own friends and uh, my own life. How does the Dharma rise here, hand in hand with all beings? So I would say lay people can make their own aesthetic determination of what it should be. And so um, lay life has to maintain a very close connection with one's own history and one's own relationships and lay life and lay practice is how the practice stays um, vital and um, intimate, connected. So um, the, the people who are practicing monastically or as priests need lay people so that our practice doesn't become narrow, boring, and desiccated. So disarray is disarray, you know, disarray might not be disarray, disarray might be, um, you know, you got a dog, you've got somebody in the bed with you, you know, you've got, uh, you have to wake up and go to work, so you better be in a comfortable position, and so on. So we, uh, each of these um, moments of practice is a response. And how detailed we want that response to be is a matter of our training, the training that is needed and the training we've received and the uh, intention we've stated and our accountability to it. So I think the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Not very specific. <laughs> yes. So this is a question. How to start? Um, it is. It's a question about the helping people so, but accepting that role. I see so many teachers. I have at some point been pushed into assisting in a sewing class because I had so you know, <laughs> there are different situations. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. You can summarize. Oh, okay. So, I think it seems likely to me that I'm going to be asked to help some people so. Um, Especially and, if you ordain them. Oh, yeah, we're not even there. It's actually, I was going to ordain somebody and I sent him to a sewing teacher because at that time I couldn't possibly do it. And then he went somewhere else. But, and all that is fine. But now I'm going, okay, giving the precepts to a couple of people and it will be my first time. You know, I've been transmitted for quite a while. And this is all hypothetical, but the conversation has just barely begun. And I'm going like, I think we could do this practically if I had a sewing retreat. Mm -hmm. But then I think, um, the handling of that seems kind of frightening to me. The handling of the management of the sewing. The management of the retreat and the helping, you know, I obviously know how to sew and I know where the books are and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's a practice that, that is puzzling to me. Okay. So, um, what what Dharma name do you go by these days? Shodo. Shodo. Yeah. Yeah. So your your English name is also a Dharma name, I think. So um, uh, mm. I actually named someone uh, for the the, uh, the oldest tree, the oldest cedar tree in Japan. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, Shodo-san is asking. Um, a question about bringing uh, the Dharma to the West. So um, our we're uh, we're not just entrusted; we're also made responsible to for the care and feeding of our students. So how do you do this? How do you get this? And I would say that if your students don't live with you in on your on your land, uh, FedEx is really useful. <laughs> <laughs> And then you don't have to lead a sewing retreat, you know? So you can, you can have them uh, join teachers of whatever um, sewing tradition uh, is near, uh, might be nearby or accessible to them. Some of them might have relatives or friends where there's a sewing teacher. You don't have to do everything. So that's what I wanna say. Now, if you want, if it would actually nourish them to make an occasion to do something in particular, like to, um, uh, I, I do a ceremony at the beginning of sewing and at the end of sewing where they receive the fabric at the beginning of sewing and they bow to the Buddha and so on. And then at the end of sewing, I do a ceremony where they give the completed raksu back to me and it becomes Buddha's or the temple's or mine and not theirs. So both of those ceremonies are really important. And the uh, ceremony of sewing it is also important, but it doesn't all have to be your um, leadership for the ceremony. Yeah, I, I think I'm having control issues. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, welcome to <laughs> welcome to our world, right? <laughs> yeah, do, but um, it, it's so it's so interesting because you know the sewing teachers didn't all agree about everything, uh, and um, 
Someone, he, he laughs. Okay, so the sewing teachers didn't all agree about everything. And there was one student who was particularly um, feeling the uh, disagreement as a hindrance. And so I invited that student to sew a rakasu, one of these, with a sewing teacher from the two different lineages who disagree. Okay, so uh, that student just completed their rakasu, and it was a really interesting um, situation because what it meant was in every place of disagreement, we had to stop and come to an agreement. So that was interesting. Um, so um, I learned how to do this. Um, uh, this kind of uh, creative dissonance inquiry process, which is really good for um, um, changing the focus of control. So I learned how to do it uh, when I was um, uh, when I was uh, you know like fifty years ago or something, uh, forty five years ago. I was I, I had a degree in architecture and urban planning, with um, a minor in community design. And one of my teachers was Galen Kranz, who studied it, who taught at the University of Chicago. And she was a sociologist who specialized in appreciative inquiry. And so um, I was at a school that was kind of an Ivy League college where, you know, it's like, okay, we ended up with a, a closet that was this shape. How are they going to use that space? Oh, that's their problem. They're the clients. <laughs> you know, I wanted to keep my uh, modified grid, you know, uh, and my creative process is the most important thing because I'm the artist here. Okay. So uh, that was the emphasis when I was going to school. So I got really interested in materials, like how do you make concrete and why don't architects or why didn't architects of the time uh, why weren't they also engineers so that they could get the most out of their materials and stuff and that kind of thing. So that kind of um, process of managing dissonance. And there was also this wonderful game, which was a computer simulation of a county, which was a proto D&D &D that was invented in the late 1960s. So you had a manual and it taught you how to be a rapacious developer. <laughs> or a feisty reporter or something. And so the idea of that running that simulation was that we would run the county into the ground in 5,000 different ways. It was the most satisfying thing. And so I think that we need some of that spirit of play as we, um, as, as I, I think as we begin to ordain people, and we begin to realize that the moment just before priest ordination is when they often go and start a love affair or hate you or something like that. I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, but this is all what we have to respond to. And that's why the maintained level of the practice, the skillful level, the Samboga level, the um, the responsive level is 202 or ceremony 202 or 302 instead of 101.
Yeah. It requires tolerance of, and, and there's no way to get tolerance, unfortunately. There's no way to get tolerance except by having problems. <laughs> And having, you know, having to feel people's rebellion and, you know, like, mom, I hate you is a, is a wonderful feature of lay life <laughs> that a lot of priests don't get to experience. We can learn a lot from our uh, friends who are parents of teenagers. Yeah. So anyway, thank you. And I think that I, I think I'm coming to the very end of my allotted time. Uh, am I? Five more, minutes. Five more minutes. One more question. Yes. Um, your, your beautiful point about the personal ecology of, of practice uh, and the, the considerations for, oh, I can speak louder. Um, no, but, uh, but they I have to hear you. That's true. Sorry. Um, a word from our sponsors. <laughs> Minnesota Zen Meditation Center has two mics, one for the teacher and one for the people who are asking questions. Everybody should do this. <laughs> your, your wonderful point of the personal ecology for your for practice and appropriate practice, I'm curious of what might be thoughtful questions or inquiry for ourselves to find that middle that middle path for say if we find pain or discomfort mm -hmm. and being able to either is it to let it go or to um, and pay it no heed versus taking that message and then doing something or acting upon it yeah yeah so that that understanding of is this constructive pain or is this damaging pain um, that is the subject of years of practice. And where you can start is with discomfort in zazen. So you can pick a place that um, hurts. What's an example of a place that might hurt in zazen? <laughs> There's so many. Hips, knees, and spine I hurt. Okay, so let's say knees. Now, um, which way do knees bend? How do knees bend? Knees bend like this. I'm going to ask a question in a third grade style. Do knees bend like this? No. Yes or no? No. <laughs> OK. So when your knees hurt, one of the things that you can do is say, am I asking my knees to bend this way? Or am I allowing them to bend this way? And then one of the things that you can do, just for a moment, pick up your pick up your knees because we're about to go anyway. But just with your hands, hold behind one of your knees. You can do this in a chair, and just use your hands to lift up your knee and to soften the tendon. You try it. Go ahead at the back of your knee. You feel there's tendon there, and if they're hard, your knee is being stressed. Okay, and you can actually put something, you can actually put something in between like this, with the knee bending this way, I can't do this now because I have to, okay, but let's say that thing is in there, 
and then you can let the leg go to the side so that it's your hip that's moving and not your knee that's being demanded to bend sideways. And there's so many things like that that we can do, right? For hips, let's say your hips are getting upset because of the weight of your legs, because all of us during the pandemic shortened the front of our hips because we sat in chairs the whole time. And then now we're asking them to do that, but they're used to doing this, right? So what we need to do is to acknowledge that something has happened and just put something under each knee, between the knee and the opposite ankle, and then the legs relax. So that this is why I started studying yoga, because I was interested in how, how do human bodies work and what are we asking of our body? How do I practice nonviolence in my own body? So that was, a, that was exactly the question. And this question of what is constructive pain, what is damaging pain? Again, it has so many different levels, but you start at the grossest level of, okay, this bends this way. <laughs> this goes, that my hip goes this way. But in the pandemic, I shortened and narrowed its range. So how am I gonna respect what I did and gradually train my hip to do something else? And when we train our knees and hips, then the spine responds with a sense of breathing. Okay, so um, there's much more, you know, so I could talk about this for two years without stopping, uh, but I won't instead, I'll say, Thank you very much for your presence and for your practice, for your hospitality, for your kindness, and for this wonderful day. <laughs>